All right, thank you so much. It was great to hear you sing this morning. Uh, it was a little frustrating not to be able to sing that much, but boy, it was such a blessing to my heart to hear you all proclaim the name of the Lord and sing and worship and praise Him. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We've been working our way through the book and through the chapter. And uh, I'll just uh, also let you know that if you'd like to take notes with handouts, uh, there is a handout in the bulletin. You can do that. Some people just use it as a means of just kind of looking to remember where we're at or when it's going to get done, right? So (laughs) it's just a way of kind of keeping those things in front of you. And uh, if you want to take notes, you can do that as well. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this, this morning, we finish out the middle portion of the, of the chapter. There's a large section that starts in verse 12, goes uh, the whole way down to verse 34, that contains three paragraphs. And uh, last Sunday morning, we took some time uh, to look at the first of those paragraphs, verses 12 through 19, and we considered six implications or consequences if Jesus never rose from the dead. And it was a pretty dreary Sunday morning for multiple reasons, but those consequences are quite severe. It ends in verse 19. He says, if in Christ we've hoped in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't arise from the dead, arise from the dead, we would be miserable as Christians. In the evening, we started in verse 20, and we made our way through verse 28. And uh, there, Paul powerfully affirms the opposite. Jesus did, in fact, arise from the dead, and then we notice that the, the resurrection of Jesus for Paul set a series of irreversible chain events that will occur, and ultimately leads to him handing the kingdom over to God the Father so that he would be all in all, that is, that he would be glorified by all created beings. This morning, we look again at the negative in verses 29 through 34. However, Paul is not just covering some ground that he's already laid before. It's not like he's just rehearsing those six negative consequences in verse 12 through 19. For the difference between this text and that text, in verses 12 through 19, it was consequences if Jesus didn't rise again. And in this passage, it's what if believers do not rise in the future? And he considers some consequences of that as well before he gives some final commands in this short but very interesting little paragraph. Uh, Look with me in your Bibles at verse 29. I'll read through it. It says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I reflect upon the words of the Apostle Paul that he proclaimed in 2 Corinthians when he said, when he was weak, then you were strong. Uh, Lord, uh, you know that many people prayed this morning for my voice, for this service. Lord, we know weakness this morning, but we pray that you would use it 
through the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish great things that we could never comprehend. May believers leave here this morning with great confidence in our future bodily resurrection and may that inspire them to hold strong in the face of persecution. May unbelievers leave here this morning knowing that there's something about the word of God that resonates, that it's true. But I pray that you do a profound work in their life as well. May they turn to Jesus even today so that they could be delivered from their sins. And we will give all the glory to you for this. Your strength, your power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I look at these verses, uh, Paul's thought breaks in two directions. It's pretty simple to outline. Um, First, Paul considers some practices that would be completely or utterly worthless if Christians do not arise from the dead. After he's done doing that, he considers or gives three important commands. So we we start first in verses 29 through 32, and we consider, we begin at how a no future resurrection would impact two practices. The first one is found in verse 29, and I summarize it this way. Paul says, well, why would you get baptized for dead people if there's no future bodily resurrection? Look again at verse 29. Otherwise, What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So you come to this passage, a single little verse. It's an obscure passage and an even more obscure practice. It leads us with all sorts of different questions here, and I want to take a few moments to try to figure out verse 29. I actually wish in some ways Paul would have given more to this so that I might understand it more. Perhaps it would have given me a little better week and... I wouldn't have been as perplexed as I was the entire week, scratching my head. What does he mean when he says that people are being baptized for the dead? Now, in order to understand this, I want to just make a few observations. Actually, I want to answer two questions. The first question I want to answer is, about whom is Paul speaking when he says there are people being baptized for the dead? Well, I find it very interesting in verse 29 that when Paul identifies uh, generally these people Uh, that are are being baptized, he uses uh, a language that is very general. He uses uh, words that are translated by the ESV here as, why do people? But then he doesn't really give us any more information. Some of your translations might translate it, why do they? Okay, and again, we don't know who they is. Okay, what we do know about this is we know that Paul does not include himself in the group. It seems that he's distancing himself from these people or they who practice these things. Uh, But there's some uh, diversity of opinion as to whether this group is either an inside or an outside group for the church of Corinth. Are they insiders claiming to be professors of faith in Jesus Christ or are they someone in the community? While we don't know for sure, it's my opinion that uh, it it makes a lot of sense that this would be a group that's inside the church, an insider group claiming uh, or or practicing these things. Regardless, as I said, Paul's distancing himself from this group. When he says they, it's obvious that he's not involved. Okay, So that's who these people are. I think it's an insider, maybe minority group, smaller group in the house churches of Corinth. But what were these people doing? That's the second question. What were they doing? Well, they were being baptized, and that shouldn't surprise us, right? 
uh, Christians sometimes get baptized. But what's odd about this is their motivation for getting baptized because it says that they were baptized for the dead or on behalf of the dead, depending on what translation you read here. And this is where we come into a vast array of different opinions. And I'm just going to, for sake of time, I'm going to chop off like many of them that I don't even think are helpful. But let me just cover three ideas or thoughts or possibilities. For some people think that Paul is speaking here about being baptized for deceased unbelievers. Deceased unbelievers who were never baptized themselves. It may be that some of the Corinthians thought that if they got baptized for deceased loved ones, that it would mean that their dear friends or relatives would go to heaven. Again, remember, the Corinthian church is all messed up. So perhaps it wouldn't be too surprising for us. We've seen how some of them reason and argue throughout here. Some of them may have had a magical view or a sacramental view of the value of baptism and taking it even so far that they thought that they could get baptized for someone that they loved who'd gone on um, already deceased but who did not know Christ. In response to this first idea, however, I'd say I think it'd be really strange if Paul didn't correct it. Okay, because all throughout the scripture, and actually nowhere in scripture would you ever be able to find anything about being baptized and that saving you, okay? let alone being baptized for someone else who's already passed away. It does not mesh with the rest of Scripture. I think it's true that Paul never endorses this practice here. He calls it, you know, that's what these people are doing, that's what they're doing. But he never rejects it on its own merits either. I mean, if the Corinthians thought that they could rescue a deceased loved one in this way, I'm pretty sure Paul would have corrected it. Okay, so... That leads me to reject that view, although that view is held by a lot of people. Okay, so another way of looking at this then is uh, others think that Paul's speaking about being baptized for deceased believers. So the first one is deceased unbelievers, deceased believers who were never formally baptized themselves. Okay, and this could be a possibility. It may be that some Corinthian believers who were concerned about the welfare of their loved ones who had accepted Christ near the end of their life, but before they could be baptized, uh, got baptized on their behalf. And so you could, you could imagine a well-meaning believer getting baptized or rebaptized in their place. Again, however, it would seem strange to me that Paul would not clarify to them that there's no need for such practice. I mean, why would you even do that? People are, go to heaven and are there solely on the merits of faith in Jesus Christ alone. So perhaps there's a better way of looking at this. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we're text people, right? We want to know what this verse means. Okay, so there's another way of looking at it, and perhaps this is a better way. So we dig down a little bit deeper. Perhaps he's speaking about being baptized out of affection or respect for deceased believers. Okay, maybe saying that some Corinthians were being baptized out of respect for or affection for people who had already gone on to know the Lord. And sometimes in our Christian life, we are impacted, or in our lives, we're impacted by the profound testimony of someone else who knew the Lord, who lived well and pointed other people to Christ. And so it may be that the testimony of some Corinthian believers led other people to Christ. 
these believers then were not only saved, but they were baptized in large part because of their respect for their departed loved ones. Okay, now, within 1 Corinthians, I said there's not really a lot about this. What does he mean when he says being baptized for the dead? Uh, One thing you can do is you can look through the whole book to see is there anything in the book about being baptized, and really there's not much. But there is one place we've already looked at, and I want to invite you to turn there. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and there was this little section that we read and made a few comments about, but we really didn't do much with, and it can perhaps shed light on this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look with me in your Bibles at verse 12. Verse 12. What, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Remember the Corinthians were breaking up in different groups, claiming allegiance to different apostles. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is that, being baptized in the name of an apostle? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. We'll stop reading there for a moment. In this passage, we have a text which shows us that perhaps some of the Corinthians were being baptized in honor of someone else, one of the apostles, perhaps. And someone might still wonder, and you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, I promise we're almost done with this part. Some might still wonder, in verse 29 here, what Paul's point would be regarding honoring dead people. I mean, could you not still honor them even if they remain in the grave? Well, this is where we come to two other possible thoughts here that I'd add to this last view. I mean, I do think it's right that some of the Corinthian believers were being baptized out of affection or respect for deceased believers. But it may be that some Corinthians were saved and baptized with a view toward being reunited with not only Christ, but also that believer or those believers who had already deceased. And while it may not be the purest motivation in the whole world, right, to want to go to heaven to be with an individual that's not Jesus, it could perhaps be possible. Or it may be that Paul considers himself and the other apostles as dead men. They're like dead men. You say, well, that seems like a stretch. Well, two verses later, look at verse 31. That's exactly how Paul describes himself. He says, I die every day. And throughout the Corinthian epistles, he'll make this very obvious to to them. Uh, he, he, he He will describe himself and some of the other apostles as people who are dead, basically. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, uh, to some people, we are an aroma that reeks of death. We smell, it says, from death to death. That's when some people evaluate us and the other apostles, they think death. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as well, just a little bit later on throughout the book, in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul says that he is always carrying around in his body the death of Christ. In verse 11, he says that we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. 
So when Paul says or questions, why would you get baptized on behalf of dead people? He may be describing himself and some of the other, other apostles as people sure to die. We're like dead people. So why would you get baptized on our behalf if we're like dead people and we're just going to go into the ground and nothing will ever happen to us again? To our bodies. Okay, so you survive verse 29. Okay. It could be any of these. It could be like one of the last two. But the question is, why get baptized for dead people if there is no future bodily resurrection of believers? That leads us, though, in verses 32 through 32 to ask another question, or Paul asks another question that would be a worthless practice if there's no future bodily resurrection, and that is, why risk death? Why risk death if I'm just going to go into the ground and there'll be nothing more? Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die. In these verses, Paul proceeds to a rapid discussion of the type of persecution that he faced as a follower of Jesus Christ, an apostle of his. He describes, he says, uh, we are in danger every hour. Every hour. He says, uh, we die daily. That's how he's describing the persecution that he faced. Every day we're dying. Which I think basically means he courted fatality or death day by day by day. He could die any day. And then he describes it near the end there. He says, and he says, and we fought with beasts at Ephesus. I think all these phrases are interesting. For sake of time, though, I'll just look a little bit more at this last phrase. He fought with beasts at Ephesus. This may mean that Paul wrestled with animals in an arena in Ephesus. Very well could be. Or it could be a way of him describing the fact that uh, he faced very brutish people in Ephesus who were wanting his life. One of the reasons I think it could be that last one is because there are other places in the New Testament where people are described as beasts. You can write down Titus 1, for instance, in that chapter, Paul's talking about a saying among the Cretans, those people who live on Crete, regarding themselves. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy people. So I think perhaps Paul might be describing the fact that he actually survived some sort of encounter with wild beasts in an arena, or he might just be describing the sort of people he faced in Ephesus. Uh, for just a few moments, I want you to turn over in your Bibles to the book of Acts so we consider the sort of treatment that the Apostle Paul faced, the Apostle Paul faced in Ephesus. Look at Acts chapter 19 for a moment. Acts chapter 19. You have to remember when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he's in the city of Ephesus. And so this is fresh on his mind. He says, why am I wrestling with beasts in Ephesus if there's no future bodily resurrection? Uh, and although Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about 55 AD, the narrative we're going to read occurs in about 53 to 54 AD, a year or two before Paul asked that question, why would I face wild beasts in Ephesus? Look in your Bible, verse 21. I'm just going to read through it without making a lot of comments. It's a fascinating narrative. 
Perhaps it's been a little while since you've seen it. Paul says, now after these events, or Luke says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Sometimes Luke, when he's describing the city of Ephesus, he will call it Asia because Ephesus was the leading or capital city of Asia Minor. Okay, and so he's in Ephesus here, which will become obvious. Look at verse 23. About that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis or Diana may be counted as nothing. And that she may be even disposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for we have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We don't know for certain, but this very well may be some of the, some of the events that led up to Paul describing himself as facing wild beasts in Ephesus. I mean, can you imagine this sort of thing? For two hours straight, people scream. Well, one, they don't know why they're even there. Just in an uproar, there's this huge emotional thing. There's much opposition to the way of Christ. And for two hours straight, they shout out, great is Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. You see their prolonged vigor and excitement here. And I think that this could be perhaps the sort of thing that Paul was facing in, De- in, in Ephesus. So Paul asked what he would gain if he faces life and death scenarios like this one, only to find out that his dead body will remain in the grave, why should he bother? Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians for a moment. 
1 Corinthians for a moment, chapter 15. Instead, Paul, near the end of this section, says, well, if it's true that there is no future bodily resurrection, then instead of facing Wabis at Ephesus, we should respond in this way. He says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And you might notice in your Bible that that is actually a quotation. The quotation marks around it. For Paul is quoting verbatim from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 3, you could write it down and look it up this week. In Isaiah 22 and verse 3, God is challenging the Israelite people to weep and mourn because of their sin. But instead of that, they choose to do something else. They engage in banquets and feasts all the time knowing that God is going to come judge them. And it's within that text that the Old Testament Israelite people say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I liked how one of the commentators I was reading through this week described this quotation from the Old Testament, what Paul is doing with it. It's in a commentary written by Brian Rossner. And he said, instead of repenting, the Israelite people decide to party like there's no tomorrow because they know that they're going to face the judgment of God. So I think Paul uses this well-known Old Testament saying about Israelites and how they responded to describe how some believers might respond if there is no future bodily resurrection. We just cast off all restraint, do whatever we want, because we're just going to go in to the ground. I think sometimes we ask ourselves as Christians, don't we? Why should I bother? Why should I keep going? Look around and we see people living in luxury and and ease, and we wonder if our lives of faith and sacrifice will be worth it. I think in moments like that, when we start looking around at other people, one of the things that is sure to steady us is for us to focus again on our future glorious inheritance that we will have with Christ. One day, we will inherit a body like his in glory, and this inspires us to keep on going even if we are facing persecution and trial. So, so look at these two worthless practices. Paul's really going after these things. I mean, why get baptized for dead people? And why risk death yourself in persecution if there's no future bodily resurrection? That leads him, and finally, to issue three commands in verses 33 and 34. And these commands are quite powerful. It's really easy to outline. Look in your Bible, verse 33, for the first imperative. Number one, he says, so do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. First, Paul declares here that the Corinthians must not allow themselves to be deceived. He gives a statement, bad company ruins good morals. Again, this is another little bit of a difficult phrase to, I think it's, Fairly easy to understand, but think about what's actually going on here. Uh, there are a few things I want to say about that phrase, and in your notes, I think I have bad companies ruin goods, morals. What does that mean? Okay, so we'll try to work through that quickly. Uh, first uh, observation I would make as I'm looking at my Bible this week, I noticed that the, that the ESV translators put quotation marks around this as well. Bad company ruins good morals. That means that the ESV translators think that this may not have been something that was original with Paul. 
The problem is, is normal sources for this sort of information, the Old Testament, or maybe the Corinthians, sometimes that's why there are quote marks around it, aren't the source that he's using this time. Because uh, these words are found among the writings of another person, an ancient Greek poet by the name of Menander, Menander, who lived about 300 years before Paul. It's very interesting that Menander was not a believer. And I don't think what Paul's doing here is necessarily endorsing everything that Menander wrote. Um, However, although he's not a believer, I think Menander came on to some truth here that Paul is going to show in context that he agrees with. Now, we can't really say that Paul's necessarily even quoting Menander because this phrase, bad company, ruins good morals, was a fairly, fairly common phrase in the first century among other writers. We see it. So it'd be like me in this, this morning trying to make some reference to Shakespeare. And uh, I have to admit, I'm not much of a Shakespeare guy, so I actually had to Google famous lines uh, from Shakespeare uh, this week. And as I <clears throat> searched down through my notes here again to find them, uh, it'd be something like saying, for me to address the phrase, to be or not to be, that is the question. Okay. And to try to use it in the sermon in some way here today. Okay. I may or may not be referring to Shakespeare. Maybe I know that that comes from Shakespeare and I'm trying to use it in some way. Or it may be that I've just heard that phrase several times all around and, and I don't even know the original source of it. To be or not to be, that's the question. Paul uses this phrase. We don't know necessarily that he's quoting from Menander, but we, we do know that he, from context, that he believes in it. He believes this saying. But that leads us to one other issue here, and that is what exactly does this quote mean? And who's Paul addressing with it? Bad companies ruin, bad company ruins good morals. Well, there are different ways you could translate it. I love, I love the ESV translation here, and I wouldn't do anything to change it. Bad company ruins good morals. But again, there's a question that we ask, and that is, who's the bad company that Paul's talking about here? So for just a moment, I want to consider that. We push down a little bit further, and we we try to consider, I mean, we want to understand this in its context, right? We want to get this. Who's the bad company that Paul's describing here? I would just make a few observations. First of all, we, we know this in the book of 1 Corinthians. We know earlier in the book, in 1 Corinthians 5, in 1 Corinthians 10, that Paul actually encourages the Corinthian believers to accept dinner invitations from lost people. In the way, the end of chapter 5 is worded, and chapter 10 is worded, if you receive an invitation to go to a lost person's house, you need to go there and you need to function normally. As a matter of fact, if we're going to obey the Great Commission, the scriptures not only imply it, they teach that we need to be interacting with lost people. I mean, even Jesus himself said of him, that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Remember that in the Gospels? So whatever our idea of who the bad company would be, it doesn't mean that we cannot interact with lost people or have a meal with them, okay? Because there are other scriptures that would clearly teach that actually that is required of us. If you're gonna be fulfilling the Great Commission, you need to be relating to lost people. You need to be with them. You need to be spending time with them. However, as we look through this passage, I want to suggest that Paul warns the church in a little different way, in a little different way. 
It's my belief that bad company here refers primarily to the professing believers in Corinth who were rejecting a future bodily resurrection. I believe what Paul's doing with all these warnings is he's warning the majority of the church or the churches in Corinth that, you know what? You need to be careful. You need to be careful about these false brothers. They're so-called believers, but they're denying an important doctrine and it's leading to all sorts of different abuses. It seems clear to me from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that these professing believers were using this false doctrine, this false belief, to cloak their immoral sex with prostitutes and harlots. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 14 sometime. They were saying, since there's no future bodily resurrection, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. And they were engaging in immoral sex with harlots and prostitutes. So Paul, I believe, is warning the Corinthian church about these proclaiming believers. He warns them that you cannot keep company with these sort of immoral sinners. And if they keep company with them, what will it do? It will ruin their good morals. Paul's warning here about the dangers of keeping company with immoral and ignorant professing believers I think should challenge us all as believers to be on guard. For, I mean, just to make sure you get this and make sure I'm clear, I'm suggesting that the bad company would be some people who were within the Corinthian church itself, at least externally, claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you know what? That whole thing about bodily resurrection, that's bogus. That's crazy. And we, you know, because of that, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. I think the warning is against that. And I think the challenge to us should alert us to anyone claiming to follow Christ who makes excuses for their behavior, behavior that the Scriptures clearly condemn. I want to encourage you to limit your interaction with people whose behavior or thinking goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. So, for instance, if their speech is not with grace, seasoned with salt, as a follower of Jesus Christ, but they're known for cursing, and swearing, speaking rudely or crudely, and taking the name of the Lord in vain, they might have some reason or way to justify it in their own perspective. They claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. I think we need to be careful. We need to be careful because that, that teaching does not adhere to what Paul says in the New Testament about the way we should be speaking. We just accept them as a believer say, well, you know, it's okay, different believer, different things. I think we need to limit our interaction with that person because they're not clearly following the text of Scripture. I mean, that's clear. If they excuse their indiscretion on the internet because everyone is doing it or because it's not really immorality, it stops short of the immoral act with, with another person. They're disobeying Christ's clear command, not even to look on another person with lust, regardless of whatever they might say, regardless of their explanations, regardless of any of their excuses. They're claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and they're acting in ways like that. That's bad company, and that will eventually corrupt our good morals. 
So maybe you find yourself in a setting where you're surrounded by, I put in quotation marks, believers with a lot of different ideas and teachings and doctrines at your school or your university. There is something to be said to be you know, exposed to different ideas and thoughts and so on. But I think we need to be careful. Just because someone says that they are a Christian does not mean that we should put our guard down and that we should just accept what they say. In some cases, we will need to insulate ourselves from people whose thinking or action does not follow the scripture. And so this first one, Paul says, you want Corinthian believers, do not allow yourself to be deceived. Be easy to be deceived and to accept what these professing believers are saying, but you can't do it because it will lead you down the same paths as them. It's the next command right after we go quickly here at the end He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. I think he's challenging the majority of the Corinthians again. It's like you're in a fog. It's like you're in a drunken stupor. You need to wake up and deal with these people. And then he says, verse 34, quit sinning. and Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Everything Paul calls on the majority of the church again to quit sinning and their tolerance of this issue and in their participation, perhaps, even in the illicit and immoral practices of those who are rejecting bodily resurrections. And then he gives them a reason, and the reason is really sharp. Look down in your text, verse 34. The reason is, for some have no knowledge of God. What's he doing with that reason? I think he's challenging the Corinthian church that some, perhaps, if you agree with my view, some within the assembly who are making these false claims about false theology, they don't even know God. I think he's questioning their genuine conversion. He's questioning their conversion. And he says, I say all this to shame you. I find it interesting that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians prided themselves in knowledge. It's like all through the book. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us have knowledge, Paul, end quote. They prided themselves in knowledge, yet Paul, all throughout the book, 10 times he'll ask them the question, do you not know this? And here he goes from a question that implies that they don't know what they think they know to a direct statement. Some do not know God. Some do not know God. As we close this morning, I want to summarize the lesson or the sermon in the last few weeks with two applications for our church. They're very short, don't be worried. First, I think we've learned all throughout this text, starting in verse 12 and throughout, that bad theology or bad thinking leads to corrupt behavior. What we believe about the scriptures and about God is very important. One, to give us a right view of the scriptures and God, but two, it will also lead to corrupt behavior. It will challenge our, our behavior. So we must care about thinking properly about the scriptures. I mean, why in the world would some preacher stand up and talk for 15 minutes about being baptized for the dead? One verse in the Bible. Well, because I care about properly thinking about the scriptures. 
and we should as well. So bad thinking, bad theology leads to corrupt behavior. But then the lesson we learned today is this. Not only does bad theology or bad thinking lead to corrupt behavior, bad company leads to corrupt behavior as well. That is fellowship with believers who dismiss the truth for whatever reason they'll give you. doesn't matter. Ruin, eventually, it ruins good morals. And so not only is it important what I think about the scriptures, but it's also important what my, what my friends, my fellow church members think about the scriptures as well. Influence is quite important. And may God give us as a church grace to care about what he says in his word and live in conjunction with that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text. Thank you for your sustaining grace. Lord, there are some really powerful commands here that uh, I need to be careful as a preacher not to, to mute or to blunt. You say, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You say, quit sinning. Do not continue in sin. You say, wake up from your drunken stupor. Lord, if any of those commands or imperatives are relevant for our church today, if there's anyone within the assembly who is making excuses for their licentious behavior, or perhaps are surrounding themselves with Christian counselors who excuse immoral behavior because of their own teaching, I pray, Lord, that you would enable them to wake up to quit sinning, not to be deceived. It's so easy to be deceived. Lord, may our desire for Christ be so strong that whatever it is you want us to do, we gladly do it because we love Christ and we want to serve him as he says to in his word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.